while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and our Reasonable Voice today's very special film documentary director Sam Pollard. Uh, welcome, Sam, to the show. My pleasure. How are you? I'm just fine and great to talk to you. You're on the show today because you are the director, not for the first time, of a very powerful documentary. This time it's entitled Maynard, that's M-A-Y-N-A-R-D, the powerful and inspiring story of the first black mayor of a major southern city. A Virgil Films release on iTunes Tuesday, July 3rd. Maynard Holbrook Jackson was elected as the first black mayor of Atlanta, Georgia in 1973. Maynard, the documentary, in my opinion, is a gut-wrenching exploration into an imperfect man who chose to fulfill the dreams and goals of justice for all, particularly African Americans living under the daily oppression of segregation. So... Uh, once again, Sam Pollard, welcome to The Reasonable Voices. My pleasure. Good to be on the show. Absolutely mine, I'll tell you. I know everyone knows about slavery by another name and Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, I Gotta Be Me. But um, tell us some of your directorial, uh, how you started. Uh, uh, Mid-70s, right, in uh, New York? Yes, I've been in the film business over 35 years. Started at a film and television workshop at WNET in 1972, uh-huh. and uh, spent about the first 17 years of my career primarily being an editor, and then in 1987, I was very fortunate to be asked to be one of the producers and directors on the seminal series Eyes on the Prize 2, right. and since, since the early 90s, I split my time between editing both documentaries and feature films, specifically for Spike Lee in the 90s, mm-hmm. and, and directing documentaries. I directed documentaries on John Ford, John Wayne, Marvin Gaye, Zordale Hurston, August Wilson, and now Mr. Sam- with Sammy Davis Jr., and now Maynard Jackson. Yes. So, you know, I've been around for quite a while. And a clear mission, it seems to me. Uh, I, I love your journey. Tell us. The journey has always been for a long time 
to have the opportunity to tell the story of the African American experience of those who we see as very important people whose stories and lives are, should be should be known by all Americans. That's why I was was very very thankful to be asked to direct the documentary of Zonda Hurston. The same, I felt the same. I did the documentary of August Wilson, and I had and I was the protege of a wonderful documentary filmmaker named Saint Clair Bourne. Who instilled in me in my early thirties at the importance of us telling our own story. Mm, excellent. As I read about you, of course, I I knew who you were and, and and much about the work you've done. But you know, preparing for the show, I read it further and deeper into the biography. There was a wonderful uh, African American actress who had written a play called Choco Sketches. I hope one day you get hold of it. She's, she's gone now, and there's a family battle about how to get it back to me. But but in any case, it is about Zora Neale Hurston, about the uh, Harlem Renaissance, and about Du Bois and all the, um, the people who moved things forward. And I just think, um, every time I think about you and, and Charcoal Sketches, I think, man, if ever there was a person who should be directing it, it would be you. But in any case, I did get to direct the play, and I did get to learn, because I didn't. I was one of those people who 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 had to be educated. I said to Betty when she I said, I don't know anything about the Harlem Renaissance. She says, don't worry, I'll teach you. And she did, and I'm thankful to this day. Okay, back to you. Tell us... Um, now about Maynard. I know you're very happy about being asked to direct it, but tell us, I, I just, as you say, people should know about this man, and I'm old enough to remember when he was elected, but I must admit, you know, I was Atlanta, Georgia, I was in New York, it didn't necessarily impact on me. So tell us why a documentary about Maynard Jackson. Well, I think it's, you know, the, the doc on Maynard is extremely important because he is you know, the next line after the people like Dr. King and mm-hmm. Ralph Abernathy and Jesse Jackson, those were the men who were breaking the doors down to try to integrate America. And then succeeding on a certain level to integrate America, you needed power brokers to could now walk inside those doors mm-hmm. and make changes happen. And one of the most important power brokers to come out of the civil rights movement who was able to walk inside and be, be amongst the power brokers was Major Jackson. Mm-hmm. He was a young man who decided to, he wanted to be the mayor of this major, of this southern city, which he turned into a major southern city. Yes. With, with his shaping and reshaping, you know, the airport. And also dealing with, he had to come in there and make people, the white power brokers, understand that if you're going to do things in that city, you need to make sure that there's diversity, that there's people of color that are involved in the shaping and the direction of the city. He did that and when it came to the police department, he did that when it came to working with the transit authority in Atlanta and, and most phenomenally with the airport. The creation of that, of what's probably the most, one of the most important airports, not only in the United States, but in the world. Yes, you know, yes. You know, the Maynard Jackson International Airport, Jackson Airport. So, he, you know, he's a, he was, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroes of our history. The other thing that's important about Mayor to remember is he came at a time when we had sort of progressed, we, not sort of, we had progressed to the point where there were a number of black mayors, you know, you know, cropping up in all the cities and many cities around the country. I was first introduced to Mayor Jackson in 1973, 1974. Mm. I was working on a little documentary. I got hired as a young editor to work on a documentary about the three major black mayors in 
big city. Mm-hmm. It was Coleman Young in Detroit. It was Thomas Bradley in Los Angeles. It was Maynard Jackson in Atlanta. Mm. That's when I first became aware of Maynard when I was 23, 24 years old. Wow. And to see the trajectory, this man has spent two terms, two consecutive terms, shaping the city, shaping the direction of the city, making this airport where the airport that it is today. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful story. And when the Jackson family, specifically his son Maynard III, and Maynard's wife, Wendy Jackson, is the producers of the film. Mm-hmm. When they approached me about doing the film, and I said, there's no question, I had no hesitation that I want to make a documentary about Maynard. The only challenge was, would there be enough archival material to help tell a story? And there was reams and reams of it. Yes. You know, tremendous amount of material, both, both, you know, in terms of footage, stills, and newspapers, and mm-hmm. stories and newspapers. I'm sorry. If I could just ask a question here, because that's another place where our thoughts uh, connect. I was working at the Kennedy Center at the time for Dr. Archie Bufkins, and we talked about uh, the Atlanta murders, and, and he was African American. Uh, he 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 tried to educate me and why one of his biggest concerns, and he said, you know, you got to understand, Marcello, that um, where these children are being murdered, if a white man was to come into that area, he'd be noticed right away and be suspect. So his concern was whoever this man was, and I know you touch on this in in your documentary of who was convicted, et cetera. But but what were your thoughts when it was happening, even even before making the documentary? What were your thoughts when the Atlanta murders were going on?
of basically two or three murders, and these were adults, not even other children. Hmm. You know, so it's always been a big question. I mean, when I interviewed one of the mothers who lost her daughter, you know, she was very candid about how she felt about Maynard Jackson that he didn't do enough mm-hmm. in trying to solve the murders, which is, you know, it was a very difficult case to solve. Sure, you know. So back then it was like, whoa, can this guy, can this guy withstand the onslaught and of dealing, having to deal with these these children dying, but also getting critiqued from not only the white, you know, primarily from the black, the, the working class black community that sure. he wasn't doing enough. And you know, I think also what your documentary Maynard covers extremely well is that I think of segregation as white suppression of African Americans, and and of course that is what it was. But also, at, simultaneously, there were particularly in the South a parallel worlds. So in other words. African Americans weren't standing around waiting for somebody to hand something to them. There, there was a whole business community and uh, people owning their own businesses and and making their way. But as you touched on, there are a couple of stories. But one that sticks with me from the documentary is when Mayor Maynard Jackson said to the local bankers that he wanted to have uh, African Americans on their boards. He wanted some diversity. And tell us about how they initially responded, and then he how he responded to that. Well, the initial response was that you know they weren't going to do it, and he basically said, "Listen, if you don't if you don't pay for the university on the boards, he was going to take the money from the city and put it in banks and other boards outside of the city, outside of the state." Yes, which, you know, which obviously frightened these men. Said, "Okay, we better get on board, but this guy's gonna he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna he's, he's messing with our." Mm-hmm. And you know, and that, and sadly, that that's the bottom line. Once they thought they were going to lose money, it's it, it was, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. They, they came to the table. They came. As soon as you say to somebody, "We're going to take your livelihood. We're going to take your 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 your, your funds." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to you know they start to they start to see the see the light of day. Yes. I mean, you know, you know, Marcello, the thing is, the thing that's very complicated about America, as you know. Here we are in the 21st century, and there are still many white people, mm. you know, who, who who want to not deal with the fact that the history of America is built on the backs of us. Yes, yes, yes. Built on our backs, built on us as slaves. And, and so many white Americans don't want to deal with that. They don't want to confront that. And that's why we still have the issues we have. Mm. And, and the other thing to remember, too, Martello, is, you know, when we say in the film that Yes, I've heard that, that, yes. Absolutely true. The thing to remember, though, is that, you know, when Obama became president, like when Maynard became president, there were people there who said, why is this black man in charge? You know, Mm. how dare a black man become in charge of us? You know, Mm. and and the tricky thing we have to confront all the time, that's why this film is so important, is that we live in a world in America where white people are constantly, I'm not saying all white people, mm. I don't want to generalize, but there's, you know, there's a group of white people who who feel they don't want to be disempowered. Yes. You know, yes. they don't want to be disempowered. That was the struggle that Maynard had to deal with in his first term, his second term, you know, even in his third term. Mm. The fact that white people said, we don't want to be disempowered. You know, we feel like, it's a whole, you know, I was just in Great Britain and I was at a rally, and I was sitting there with two men who I interviewed, 
about another project I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And they had they had a, the, the, the thing on their hat said, Marcello, make great Mit, make great Britain great again, make great Britain great again. Oh, gee. These are people. These are people, not only in America, but yes. in Great Britain, who subconsciously want to go back to the old ways mm-hmm. where Great Britain was the biggest colonizer in the world. Yes, <laughs> you know where Americans, you know, we were considered black people to choose the what you said, some of that. Yes, you know? yes. It's, it's it's this whole mentality that oh my God, this this country is not going to be white anymore. And it's when humanity came there. You know, it was like tearing on the light when you were when you were a kid. That was the project. The roaches would run because they said, "Oh my God, a, a black man's going to be telling us how to run this city." You know, mm-hmm. one of the things interesting in the city is when I interview, when I interviewed Sam Michelle. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. His, camp, his campaign. Yes. His campaign basically, if you if you if you elect this black man, this city will become like Newark. And a buddy of mine who I interviewed in the film, Blackwood, says. You know, why did Sam himself say when you showed him that picture about being black? Is you know he need to identify as a black man because he still thinks this ninety-year-old man thinks yes. it was all right to be that. Yes. Oh yes. Right yes. And, and <laughs> isn't he the one who said you have to to succeed? You have to think white or something. That's but, right. Yeah. Gee. All right, we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to take a break. This is this is great stuff. We're going to be right back. Please stay with us. I'm talking with Sam Pollard, award-winning. I didn't even say a lot of that. Award-winning uh, uh, director. We'll, we'll list his uh, more of his awards when we in our second uh, episode. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now enjoy Watchfire music, featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing "Beautiful" from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Yes, the Lord is greatly to be praised. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is director Sam Pollard, who has done many things, and I didn't mention a lot of them, you know. Uh... So tell us about yourself, Sam. I've had a long career. I was I was a producer and supervisor with Spike Lee on the Academy-nominated Poor Little Girls. We also did the Emmy-winning With the Levees Broke, 
you know, in Peabody World when this guy was going in the creek don't rise. Yes. I also directed Slavery by another name. I've done many documentaries both as a producer and as an editor, and it's a pleasure being on your show today. Well, thank you, sir. That is quite, thank you. Now you leave me even more speechless, but okay. We we were talking, and, and I think leading right up to this, and we continued during the segments, but I would, uh, let's give reference points here. You've mentioned leading up to Maynard uh, and how how his his being on earth and doing what he did and and raising really Atlanta Georgia to not as I think you said too it wasn't just that it suddenly became a major city but he ma- he gave it a footprint nationally and internationally and since you brought up the airport so much I want tell us please how the um, the mayor of a city well there are two stories but the first one I want you to tell, he, he decided to move an interstate highway because this airport, he could see that this international airport, giving it that adjective, was a major step toward fulfilling what he saw as his mission to help his people. You take exactly. it. Exactly. And, and he knew that that was the track that he was on. Yes. And he wanted to make sure that there was a percentage of people of color that were involved with the airport and when the white power brokers were involved in the airport building the airport said there was no way they could have really an imprint he says wait a second he says why don't we have them get involved in making this airport larger and how were they going to make it larger if they moved the interstate mm. so if you look at you look at the trajectory of that interstate when you're driving up to the airport you see how it it, it sort of steers right Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't go on a straight line. Mm-hmm. That was Maynard's idea to build, to really build out that airport. And to do that, he had, was able to hire more black contractors yes. to be involved in, in that, making that happen. This guy, this guy was revolutionary. He was, he was very forward thinking. You know, he was, he was the right man at the right time for yes. the city. Yes. And, and by the time he was near the end of his, his second term, so that's when young black men like me who grew up in the north are saying, maybe this is a city we want to move to. Because I remember visiting the city yeah. in the late 70s, early 80s, working with some friends and saying, man, this city is pretty accommodating for black people, black middle class people, black people who are college educated. Because my parents grew up in the south. My mother was from Georgia. My dad was from Mississippi. Mm. And I understood as a young man why they escaped that place. Mm-hmm. But when I went back to Atlanta in the late 70s, early 80s, I, could, I saw a possibility of why I want to come back to the South. Wow. And you know, and it certainly wasn't that way before he was elected. I mean, even once he he was elected as the vice mayor, there was a big move with the alderman to uh, make certain he couldn't even uh, carry out what were legally his responsibilities. But he he ran an end run around that. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, because because he was was sad himself wasn't there. It was his job to carry out the responsibilities of the mayor. Yes, and they tried not they tried to not have to do that. He was able to get the community, the black community, to support the fact that that was his job and he should be able to do it. Yes. I mean, this guy, this guy is, is, is really one of the great American revolutionaries when it comes to moving this, this country the dial in terms of being forward thinking about America. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty powerful story. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm, I'm glad I was invited and asked to be involved in the shaping and making of the film. 
And, and you know, there are a lot of, as of course you know, because you shot it, uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, interviews that are uh, incredible in their editing, which I'm sure comes from you too. And the impact of uh, his two wives, his children, his associates, those who worked with him uh, at City Hall, uh, his his daughters, his sister. I mean, it, it just goes on and on with people who, and even people who were not necessarily uh, as positive about him, but they're there to, telling their impression. And of course, not to forget the uh, international leaders of international reputation who also speak in your documentary about Maynard Jackson. How, how, well, what, you know, it, go ahead. It, it was very important to, to, to get a broad breath of people to speak about, about Maynard both professionally and personally. Yes. And that's one of the things I said that was important when I came on board to Wendy. We needed to get the family members, you know, both both his wives. Mm-hmm. We needed to get all of his children. We wanted to get, you know, the power brokers. We you know, wanted to get Jesse. We wanted to get Clinton. But, you know, we got all the black mayors that, that have come after Mayor Jackson. Bill Campbell, Shirley Franklin, Andrew Young, Christine Reed. Mm. We got them all. Yes. You know, which was important. So you see his lineage. You see his lineage. You know, and for me, just to sit in front of Dr. Sharpton, the Reverend Sharpton, oh, yes. and, you know, Reverend Jackson, is, is one of the great honors for me. You know, yes. He's a very important human being, very important human being. And then I said, as we were halfway through shooting interviews, I said to Wendy, you know, we can't do a film and not deal with the American child murders and not deal with a parent who lost a child. Yes. And I said, well, if, we, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't be doing our job. Yes. You know, and, and they were able to get this mother to come and sit down with me and she, she didn't even think she would make the cut. Mm. She thought she would not make the cut, you know, because we were going to do this this, this polished piece about Maynard. So this was one of these projects that, you know, every time I watch the film, I see it three or four times now, it's a different festival. I'm, you know, and I'm the one who made it with yes. a wonderful editor. I can't take all the credit. I had a wonderful editor named Jeff Cooper, uh-huh. you know, to, to make this film come to life. And when you see these things, when you, it's always fascinating to me, this process. When you see all these interviews that you spent maybe an hour, hour and a half shooting, mm-hmm. asking all these questions, <laughs> and you take pieces of it and you shape it into a story. It's, even for me, who's been doing it quite a long time, myself, yes, yes. I'm still, I said, whoa, this is great. So, I'm, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad it came out. I'm, I'm glad it's going to be on iTunes. It's going to be on Delta Airlines. It's, it's, gonna, it's, it's been doing, it's, it, it has got great reception. Well, I got the privilege of, of seeing it in its entirety a couple of nights ago, and I've watched it a couple of times since then. And I have to say that it, it just, um, uh, I think where you were going, I'll, I'll finish your sentence for you if you didn't, and if I'm incorrect, just correct me. But it, it, when you direct something and you put all of your this focused, intense time, especially when it's largely a labor of love, and, and a tribute to someone who has gone before you that has lit your path in whatever way. But when you do go back and you are so moved by what you are seeing as a finished product that you almost feel like it came from something outside of you and through you. Is that too much? That's exactly right. You hit it right on the head, man. <sighs> that's, the, that's, that's the wonderful mystery of making these films. Because when you're not editing the film yourself sometimes and you sit there and you watch an editor work your material and shape it, it's sort of like an outside body experience. You say, well, yes. did I really do that? Did I, really I know. Did that? Or did someone else make it? It's, it's amazing. 
every time that I direct the film, mm. and then I watch it. Mm-hmm. And then I said, oh, I did that interview, I did this, I did that piece, because there's a whole different process when you're physically sitting and editing yourself, mm-hmm. and then when you're sort of standing outside of it. Yes. So it's a, you know, it's a, I, I have to say this to you, Marcello. When I got anointed to do this as a lifetime career, mm. it's probably it's probably the most important thing that happened to me, except the the the, the, the fact that I had four children, four yes. wonderful children. Yes. No, I understand. I tell you, I really, I just was so moved by it. Well, well let's go back. I, I, I want to touch on the airport again because there was that other story I want you to tell. Maynard was told by the, I believe, by the, air, the airport people, uh, and this may, I may be confusing the bankers board story with the airport, but but it, whatever they said to him about not including uh, African Americans in the construction of the airport, one of his responses was, he, he, you know, he certainly wasn't pleased by it. We know that. But he kept his cool, and he came back with this offer, which I thought was, I mean, who thinks like this? I thought when I, when I saw it, he says, well, what was it, like 75% of any airport are runways and runways of uh, concrete like roads? I got people. Yeah, can, right. I got people who can build roads. So t- tell us that one. If if I would mix it up too much. Yeah, he, he, he said, you know, he says, you know, most of these things are concrete, and I have people who can build roads. And he says, let's 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 let's, let's move the let's move the airport. Yes. And, but the other thing he said, the guy says, if you guys don't want to do this, weeds will grow. Oh you yes, know? that's right. And weeds will grow. <laughs> you know, for, it was, and, was, and what a powerful thing. I mean, in, in the documentary, I think, well, the, the thing, it, you know, a point is made, and I certainly am guilty of this, obviously. One strength he did not have was being able to give short answers. But I'll tell you, walking into there with the, the airport, airport uh, people and saying, weeds will grow. I mean, it just speaks volumes, and there's the phrase. That's <laughs> Yes, I know. Yes, yes. He was, you know, his size and his eloquence, and of course his his uh, his mastery of detail and the facts, and to be able, as I, in this one incident we just mentioned, to be able to go out, leave a meeting where things are said by about people that he feels he is the champion of and he can't blow off steam he has to he has to leave the office like a mayor and has to come up with something that solves this problem without uh but but still he came up with weeds will grow and i love it i'll never forget that but this the whole ice cream thing i i grew up loving mario lanza who ultimately in his career couldn't even appear in movies because he had gained yeah, so much weight, you so know? Much weight. Yeah. Yeah, so much weight. I mean, you know, that's you know, listen, we all the human beings have things we have to deal with and fight with, you know. That yes. was that was his that was his Achilles heel. Yes. Well, you know, he loved food, but you know, he was uh, other than that. He, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, well let's talk about talk about talking about other things. How about the nineteen ninety six Summer Olympics? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. How did he do that? I mean Well, I think I think that was strategic. I think he was very strategic. And him and Andy, you know, were a great duo. Uh-huh. And they're able 
able to talk the Olympic Committee as as uh, Maurice Hobson says and and the director church and 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 made it direct to politics. Oh yes, 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 yes. Oh yes, uh, Lena Horne. Yeah, yes. Wow. Yeah. That's right. Yes. You know, it. Uh, I, I, and the only reason I'm tongue-tied about it is because I write about it all the time, and it's just, uh, it's sad because the numbers of people who fluctuate at all, but fluctuate, you know, up to above forty percent of uh, of the voting public, anyway. And think this is all a good idea that we are somehow going to be better. I. I, I just don't understand it. It, it doesn't. It's, 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 because think of it this much, though. If Obama talked like Trump, oh. the white people would have gone crazy. I know. I know. They would have gone crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, black man. How dare you act like that? I, I know. Exactly. Exactly. And, and well, I don't. I want to end on as high a note as possible. We've had such a great conversation. So tell us about uh give us some websites and, and what we should see and where we should visit and so forth oh have you heard about the um montgomery alabama the new um Brian yes 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 yeah yeah sure you know i heard about it man yeah, well, <laughs> I, yeah I, listen brian brian stevenson is another one who's an important presence in this history yes and and and, and that's a courage and the determination and the tenacity to say 
let white America, let America, not just white, let America understand. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's present and represent those of us, those of our people who were lynched, who were burned. Yes. You know, who were emasculated. You know. Yes. Let's put a market so you, America. It's like the, it's like it's like what the Jews do, man. Never forget. That's right. Absolutely. And that's and that's it. And and what bugs me more than anything, I, I love history and I've, I've never been, I'm not a historian, but I've been a substitute teacher in history classes. And when I found out well after I'd stopped working in public schools that I had only taught half the history, I felt, I felt like what, I've sent these people out thinking they know history now because they loved me as a teacher, but I only, I only taught half of it. That's what bugs me more than anything else. Okay. Yeah. All right. Back to website and how we uh, how we yeah, follow you, know, you and your career. You, 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 um, are you talking about the Maynard or my career? Uh, Maynard, you, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, if you go on, if you go on Facebook and put in Maynard Jackson, so it'll the ones the, you, know, you can get to the Facebook page yes. and they have a lot of stuff on there. You know, Wendy and them have been very proactive. You know, I, quite often I don't even know what the website ID is. Wendy will know. Okay. You know. that but it's going to be on yeah. iTunes July 3rd um, which is very soon uh, and yeah. uh, any other places we should know about yeah it's going to be playing on Delta Airlines I think in the fall uh-huh. you know it's going to play so I said Netflix and it's going to play the Martin's thing at African American Film Festival Excellent. between August 6th and August 11th okay and the website is maynardmovie.com Facebook yeah. You know, uh, okay. as you say, in Instagram, Twitter, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. It's been a pleasure. And at, Sam, I got to tell you, thank you so much, Sam Pollard, the director, for being on our show today. We wish you and Maynard and all associated with it all the very best, okay? Thank you so much, Al. You too. Be good. Bye now. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music featuring vocal artist Jenny Burton singing Tear Down the House from Is Anybody Listening?
Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Heard shots round the world, slow to heal Republican elections' infections. Look, elections now prisoner of GOP gutters, condemning us with every syllable McConnell utters. By the right, non-whites should be taken out and hung for the cold-blooded murder of white supremacy dung. Stop the steal! Oh, heavens, what a chant! This is how conservatives' truth is pollution, enabling Arizona State Senate recount collusion. Oh, come now, state repubs, Florida's cyber ninjas, how low can you go with fringes? Hear them down on West Pace's Ferry Square, dropping racial slurs everywhere, spewing hate any way they like. You, Senator Johnson, did you go to school? Who taught you oath-seekers' insurrection was cool? And each protester like you, Ron, a tool. Hear your assemblymen, or worse, hear fellow hypocrites converse. America would rather hear peaceful assembly than that. Cowards cackling behind the scene, preferring pipelines and oil spills to environmental clean. I ask you, Republicans, what sort of party is that? It's gerrymandering and red-mapping that keep you in your place, not your monotone talking points and self-serving pace. Why do conservatives teach their clones how not to think? This skin color caste distinction by now should be a due. If people of color treated you the way you treat them, why, you might die in private prisons, too. Begging your pardon if you take offense, but how elected officials vote absolutely classifies them, especially when inciting riots to keep our light upon a hill dim. One common ground, America, I'm afraid we'll never get. Oh, why can't the Congress learn to set a good example for corporate lobbyists whispering pieces of silver in their ears, when the street and violent mobs leave folk without hope and faces full of tears. There are even places in America where democracy completely disappears, where in deep red states they haven't used it for years. Why can't our citizens teach their states how to think? Obama flipped nine red ones in 2008. South Carolina gave Biden White House instead, even as Louisiana remained blood-red. And still New Orleans cares not what Monte Gras night revelers do exactly, as long as on Fat Tuesday they pronounce it properly. Americans who learn wrong lesson from Turkish-Armenian mass slaughter emulate QAnon and Proud Boys in Charlottesville killing a beloved daughter. But... Resist systematic racism of hued lives that matter, and wanton destruction of environment by partisan clutter, you're regarded as a socialist, like puppets of Putin's puppet POTUS, recommending bleach for what ails populace. Oh, why can't Democrats and Republicans learn to be Americans? Beg pardon of Lerner and Lowe, and Rex Harrison, for manipulating their collective artistic genius to make my political points regarding a land of the free, which was free to keep the promises made by our founding fathers to the top one percent of their day, or wait to begin work on justice for all after Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg Address, and assassination, with constitutional evolutionary amendments, the 14th, 
granting citizenship to all born or nationalized here, including people forcibly brought here for free labor. The 15th, giving African-American men the privilege to vote, but not women of any race, color, national origin, sex, religion, or age. The 17th, reigned in political bosses' control of a congressional senators, paving the transfer of political puppet strings from robber barons or captains of industry to the carte blanche of Eisenhower's military-industrial complex, cementing foundation for the largely invisible and secretly funded Citizens United money changers. The 19th, granted females the male privilege to vote, but not equal citizenship nor guarantee of equal pay for equal work. Honestly, who among us expected Truman to fill FDR's shoes, or LBJ's JFK's, but an elderly, compassionate conqueror of a childhood stutter, resurrecting America from an apathetic, self-inflicted failure in judgment, is truly the wind beneath our wings, and the answer to a prayer released into the ethers of a merciful universe by millions of Americans committed to saving our American dream from its lowest common denominators." while enduring but managing our day-by-day comeback from the intentional national betrayal of our international integrity, arch-conservatives eroding a major political party into the hypocrisy of right-wing extremists, can we finally now recognize, one, a global pandemic isn't a hoax, two, systemic racism is the remnant of American slavery, three, Denial of scientific facts devastates more families with losses to COVID, murderous racial discrimination, and mass shootings in schools, workplaces, and locations essential to our very daily survival. 4. The worst denial of all risks condemning our children and grandchildren to death by climate change. If we cannot create common ground for planetary survival, let's at least finally see each other as siblings, even twins, enduring the same tragedies and comedies resulting from electing leaders who focus more on their next election than our next generation. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Mm-hmm.